Welcome to the Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. At this point in human history, there's no place that's really untouched. And the idea of wilderness really has to be altered in a sense, into a sense of gardens, that we're all gardeners and that we have to care for everything. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. We stand at the threshold of a historic opportunity in the human experiment to reimagine how to live on Earth and with each other in a way that honors the web of life. It's a revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. As the basic life support systems of planet Earth plunge into dangerous decline, in this series, Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we celebrate social and scientific innovators with breakthrough solutions guided by how nature does it. The Bioneers, combining social innovation, leading-edge science, and indigenous and traditional knowledge, creating a future environment of hope. In a review article published in the journal Science, researchers report that as of 1995, only 17% of the world's land area remained truly wild. That's land with no human populations, crops, road access, or nighttime light detectable by satellite. They also report that half of the world's surface area is used for crops or grazing. More than half of all forests have been lost to human activity, and the largest land mammals on several continents have been eliminated. Wilderness is chewed up to feed our six billion population. And in an all-connected world, we're affecting the very temperature and weather of the planet. So what is really endangered, what is perhaps the ultimate wilderness in the big picture, are the Earth's natural life support systems themselves, our source of life. But fortunately, a new generation of land managers are showing that we can protect this deeper wilderness in an unexpected way, not only as defenders of remote outposts, but also as good gardeners tending our plots. The plot thickens. In this program, we hear from three bioneers who are working to preserve and restore ailing lands in the western and southwestern United States. In New Mexico, Miguel Santistevan is preserving a centuries-old system of dry land water management. Gypsy goat lady Lani Malmberg roams the West with over 2,000 highly intelligent four-legged recyclers. And biologist Peter Warshall is practicing biological diplomacy on the U.S.-Mexico border to protect the North American jaguar. These are some of the new gardeners of the wilderness. Join us for the next half hour for Jaguars, Goats, and Asequias, Cultivating the Landscape of a Wild Earth. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. I live in the upper Rio Grande in Taos. I live in the house my grandfather built on the Don Fernando de Taos land grant that was established in the middle 1700s. And I irrigate off the acequia that has been there since then. Miguel Santistevan is a permaculturist who works for the New Mexico Acequia Association on water and multicultural land use issues. He lives above 7,000 feet, where each year the growing season lasts for only three months. He also works with youth in the traditional Native American Farmers Association. 
nowadays there's a sense of owning the land or controlling the resources. But in the indigenous times of the upper Rio Grande, it was more about belonging to that and honoring those elements that were necessary for survival. From being a landowner to belonging to the land, Miguel Santisteban's view of his place and his role in the world has been profoundly shaped by his place in the world, literally, the watershed to which he and his neighbors belong. They grow food and manage the land, but the relationship is fully reciprocal, as it was for the first peoples of the upper Rio Grande. He spoke to us at a recent Bioneers conference. These native people, their agricultural system wasn't confined to a garden plot or a, a farm, not a piece of land. Like we think of a farm or a garden nowadays, the agricultural system of the native people was the entire watershed. At the bottom of the watershed, there's water, there's fish, there's willows for baskets, you know, wetland plants, and then you get into the hills uh, surrounding the river. In there you can hunt rabbit, you can hunt small animals. Then you get into the juniper pinon woodlands. You gather pinon, you gather firewood, you gather ocote. helps you get your pitch, helps you get your your fire going. Then you get onto the mesa tops. And, and that's r the really interesting aspect of indigenous agriculture is the land management. We find these rock structures on the mesa tops where they were managing the watershed and slowing the water down, allowing that water to infiltrate. The land of the upper Rio Grande typically gets 11 inches of rain per year. Compare that to the average rainfall in Chicago of 34 inches per year. So water is key to everything. Drawing from indigenous land practices and their own heritage, Spanish settlers introduced a dry land water management system that in some places is still working, still in use, the acequia system. Again, Miguel Santisteban. When the Spanish came, they brought with them thousands of years of, of agricultural experimentation. Ultimately, um, their agricultural system was based on Arabic methods of irrigation, the acequias. The word acequia means to irrigate or to share water, or I even heard a translation, the right to quench one's thirst. And central to this system was the repartimiento, sharing water in scarce times and how that's done. And it was a, it was a water democracy, actually, with every ir irrigator having a vote having a voice in, uh, in how their structure was being run. And basically, this acequia system diverts water from the upper watershed. It's a gravity-flowing system, and, uh, and it creates irrigated land. And then at the end of the community, the water's returned to the river. And there were strict regulations about how you set up an acequia. You could not divert any water from a river unless there was 20 surcos of water or un way the agua. And a way the awa is the amount of water that would flow up to the belly of an oxen if you put it in the river. And, uh, and everyone had to participate in the maintenance. Everyone had to uh, clean it every spring. We still do that every spring. The community gets together and we clean these acequias out, get out all the rocks, the debris. And uh, once the acequia is established, every family who gets a land grant or a merced, 
and that's a large tract of land in the upper watershed. Every family gets a suerte, which is 13 acres of land, and that starts at the river and goes to the acequia, and then beyond the acequia is the ejido, the common lands that the community shares and manages collectively for wood gathering, for grazing, for medicinal plants, these kinds of things. And inside the suerte, from the river to the acequia, you had designated land uses. Closest to the river, you had your cienega, and they were wetlands. And that was pretty much left alone. You weren't allowed to put your animals there, these kinds of things, because there was a community downstream who was going to be using that water for drinking. Above your cienega was your vega, or your prado. The vega is a meadow or a pasture, and your prado is a communal pasture land. Sometimes they would open up suertes between families and they would communally graze their animals in that area. Above that was the joya or the jewel land. That was where your best land was for the cultivation of your crops. And then above that was your altitos. In your altitos, that's where you plant your orchard because the cold air follows the river. And in your altitos, you know, you have a better chance of getting your flowers to pollinate in and getting fruit, and then your acequia, and above your acequia is the uh, secano, or the altemporal, so there was also a dry land component to our agricultural system, vast tracts of land planted in, in dry land, especially beans, and um, so there was that intense diversity of how you use the land, and it was against the law to build a permanent structure on your irrigated land. That was a punishable crime because all the irrigated land was food for the community. That was, that was how the community sustained itself with this acequia system. Since 1900, many acequia communities have undergone change. They've been pushed toward the monetary market-based economy and away from their traditional barter-based systems. In his work with the New Mexico Acequia Association, Miguel Santistevan is working to preserve the Acequia system model, its laws, and its culture of sharing, cooperation, and reverence for the land. A lot of people buy land and they have an Acequia on it. And, you know, even the realtors often aren't aware of the depth of the Acequia tradition. And the Acequias have an easement, just like a road. And that's part of the work we do at the New Mexico Acequia Association is we're building up some educational materials to educate people as to how they can strengthen their Acequia systems that they belong to, but also to educate the realtors. We need to educate the judges, the police. You know, everyone has to be aware that these laws are on the books. Miguel Santistevan points out that the Acequia systems that exist today are not just quaint relics of the past worth preserving for sentimental reasons. Global warming is shifting weather patterns and patterns of rainfall. These traditional practices of living within the fluctuating carrying capacity of a watershed, of gardening a watershed, of belonging to the land, may be nothing less than our operating instructions for survival. I think this is important for everybody because it represents a way of living with the land and a way of viewing water and a way of viewing resources. And the way this connects us to everyone else, no matter where they're at. You know, someone in San Francisco, someone in L.A., they also need water, and they also need food. And whether they know it or not, or appreciate it or not, all of the things that, beyond that that they need, you know, their heating, their clothing, their shelter, has to come from somewhere. Somewhere. 
and the indigenous cultures of the Southwest and the Asekia culture represents a framework, a model of how do you do that? And not only how you do that, but how do you do that in scarcity? And our system, the Asekia system, is a way of looking at how you can manage water, natural flowing, clean sources of water, and try and protect those and, and use them within your means. Miguel Santisteban. Asequia communities in the upper Rio Grande have grafted themselves organically onto a whole system of natural elements, gravity, water, elevation, and the needs of particular habitat. The communities are meeting the needs of people by meeting the needs of the land and all its inhabitants. When we return, more stories from gardeners of the wilderness. This is jaguars, goats, and acequias cultivating the landscape of a wild earth. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. U.S. Geological Survey reports that the use of herbicides in the United States reached nearly 100 million pounds in 1998. Anti-pesticide activists say the numbers have only increased since then. These staggering amounts come with risks. Lawn weed killers have been linked to lower fertility in rats and mice. One herbicide seems to turn frogs into hermaphrodites, and others are possible and probable human carcinogens. It's enough to make some people wonder, is there a smarter way to weed the earth? What I found out about goats is they're very intelligent. They have keen eyesight. And, well, they're smarter than we are. They're smarter than humans, and that's, that's no question about that. That's Lanny Malmberg. With a family background in Wyoming cattle ranching, she has degrees in environmental restoration and biology, botany, and a master's in weed science. In 1998, she began a weed control business using grazing goats instead of chemicals. She and her two sons now manage some 2,500 goats working in 10 western states. She's known as the Gypsy Goat Lady. They eat everything pokey, poisonous, noxious, toxic. They eat all of those things that no other animals eat. For instance, poison hemlock is toxic to everything, and goats have an enzyme in their saliva that detoxifies it before they even swallow. So they have these unique things enzymatically and the mixture of the bacteria in the gut, but then also their behavior. They have these very cool behavioral things that can really make a difference when I'm doing land restoration. For instance, they stand on their hind legs, unlike other animals. So a goat can reach up eight feet into the air when I'm doing brush control or tree control like salt cedar, a tamarisk species, or Russian olive trees that are threatening our, our water and our ecosystems in the west and southwest. They crawl on their knees and they can crawl into a thicket, a brush, a, a nasty, thick thicket. They can crawl in there and then just eat their way out. So it's perfect for brush control. They can get anywhere. They can eat cactus and 
rose bushes are one of their favorite things. They have prehensile lips, which they kind of turn inside out. So when they eat a cactus or a thistle plant, the prehensile lips can go around that, and then they swallow it. So the thorns are pointing up, and they swallow it, so it goes down. They just have all these very unique habits. Another thing about them is they stay in a very tight herd, unlike cattle. Cattle scatter in a pasture. Goats stay in a very tight herd together, which, like if you have uh, 2,000 goats, that's 8,000 hooves. But the weight of the animal, probably the average weight of my herd, is about 70 pounds. They have four hooves, so it's a great tilling machine. So with that hoof action, in a if a goat is walking, his foot is flat to the ground. But if I get the dogs to make them run, those hooves go perpendicular and dig. So just by making the goats run, I can do quite a tillage and an, an aeration on any piece of ground in land restoration. So by the behavior of the animal and their diet preference and their unique enzymatic system, you can do anything. Besides helping ranchers, Malmberg has federal and municipal contracts. Her goats work for the Bureau of Land Management, the Forest Service, and the Department of Defense. They manage weeds, do fire fuel load reduction, brush control, and erosion mitigation. For example, her goats have restored waterways in the city of Cheyenne, Wyoming. It's quite a scene. In the city of Cheyenne, um, I have these four-deck semi-trucks that haul 50,000 pounds of goats. And the semi drives up to this parking lot, and they open all the doors, and all the goats jump out. And We're standing there with border collies, and as soon as the whole truck gets unloaded and the goats are moving around through the city, and then we go set some temporary electric fence on the exact plot that we're working, and the goats start taking the vegetation and recycling it right through their gut to pure organic fertilizer and putting it back on the ground. I call a goat the highest technology known to mankind for recycling, and they're (laughs) self-propelled. No roar of gasoline-burning mowers or weed trimmers, no screaming chipper-shredder machines, and no chemicals. It's a different paradigm. When you take a chemical out to try and kill a species out, you're in the paradigm of treating symptoms. You do not look at the problem and the underlying problem or any kind of a future goal. If you had any kind of a long-term goal, you wouldn't spray because it, it wouldn't be a choice. So what I do by healing the land and encouraging different plants to go, but all the time building the soil and making things healthy and making the water cycle so it can work there and water infiltrate and hold there and, and getting diversity in the land, which brings diversity in insects, birds, wildlife, livestock and people who can make a living on that land because it's more productive, that's a different paradigm. Lanny Malmberg is working with nature to heal nature. Her story's been told on CNN, on CBS, and in Newsweek and People magazines. She's trained other would-be goat gypsies and seems to be having a great time doing it. Everybody's doing what they naturally want to do. The goats are eating what they naturally want to eat. And the border collies are in heaven because they get to do what they naturally, instinctively want to do. And I am doing exactly what I want to do. And whoever hires me gets the benefit of actually addressing the problem. So there's an end point. Everybody benefits. Lanny Malberg and her goats.
Now we turn from goats to jaguars. We usually think of jaguars stalking silently in an Amazonian jungle or adorning Aztec temples in central Mexico. Historically, though, jaguars were also found in North America as far east as Texas and as far north as the Grand Canyon. The last female jaguar seen with young in the Grand Canyon was sighted in 1904 and promptly shot. Cattle ranchers have traditionally regarded jaguars as threats to their cattle herds, but with recent evidence of jaguar activity in the southwest corner of New Mexico, efforts have begun to try new land management strategies. Is there room for a powerful predator whose historic northern range has gone from wilderness to cattle country? Biologist Peter Warshall is a biodiversity and wildlife specialist. He formerly edited Whole Earth Review. He's working to protect the North American jaguar. His unlikely allies are cattle ranchers from both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. These cattlemen are practicing a new kind of conservation ranching, not just using the range to feed cattle, but using the ranching to feed the range and all its inhabitants. Conservation ranching is going on all over the country now, and it's taking different forms. You have people on one end, like Ted Turner, who owns land in Nebraska and all over the country, and he's decided that he doesn't even want cattle. So he's taken the cattle off and put bison on because he feels they're more gentle on the land. And the one in Arizona that I know most about called the Malpai Group, and then there's another called the Kavira Coalition up in New Mexico, What they've decided to do is to incorporate endangered species into their conservation program. So they've gone a different step. In his work with ranchers, Peter Warshall senses a growing willingness in the United States to live with major predators. Here's why predators are important to healthy ecosystems. Studies in Yellowstone National Park, where wolves were reintroduced, have shown cascading benefits. With wolves back in the neighborhood, elk couldn't hang around the rivers so easily anymore. Within five years, the cottonwoods and shore plants they ate grew back. In ten years, warblers and other birds dependent on shoreline vegetation returned. The rivers are coming back to health, and that's good for the fish and the creatures who eat fish. The elk are doing fine, and the wolves are seen as valuable land managers. Peter Warshall says that supporting the much-depleted population of northern jaguars yields the same kinds of benefits. Now back to the ranch and a growing safe zone for jaguar. So if you go into that little boot hill that you see in New Mexico, that's where two of the jaguars have been seen. And that's where there's the 800,000 acres of the Malpai group of these conservation ranchers dedicated to never shooting a jaguar. If you go right across the border, there's another 800,000 acres of Cuenca dos Ojos of Mexican ranchers who have now joined. So there's a million six hundred thousand acres of land that is a jaguar sanctuary. What's working is a cross-cultural exchange. In this case, ranchers working with conservationists, U.S. biologists with Mexican biologists, humans with jaguars. Warshall and the Northern Jaguar Project, based in Tucson, have now purchased important habitat to set aside as a sort of jaguar nursery. Ultimately, it's part of a more ambitious master plan, a massive cross-border corridor to protect North America's largest cat. Warshall says that the plan could have an unusual collaborator, low-paid ranch hands. What we're hoping to do is 
a typical vaquero, a cowboy, earns about $140 a month. If we put up camera traps, which are cameras that have an infrared beam going across them and anything that passes through trips the camera. So we're going to give them cameras and say, if you see what looks like a Jaguar track, you set up these cameras. If you get a Jaguar, we'll give you $100. So by turning the economy around, suddenly you're going to have a whole group of vaqueros who want to find Jaguars as kind of wilderness guardians. But the return of the jaguar first depends on return of its habitat and its game. And that's the idea behind the newly purchased nursery sanctuary along the Rio Yaqui in northern Mexico. Again, Peter Warshall. We have 10,000 acres, and then we want 33,000 acres more, which we're trying to find donors for. And then we will know that at least maybe three, maybe four females have a place with their own prey. They don't have to worry about killing cattle. You know, we'll restore the land to increase deer and increase javelinas. And that will remain the core of the birthplace of the northern jaguar. It's a simple premise. Jaguars won't eat cattle if they have adequate land and game of their own. Then ranchers will have less reason to shoot jaguars. Then the two top predators can resume their own healthy, complementary roles in a complex living ecosystem. Peter Warshall, Lanny Malmberg, and Miguel Santistevan are a new generation of land managers who understand the land is the best manager. Goats eat weeds, water flows downhill, and predators eat game, strengthening riparian habitat. It's management by staying out of the way managing as if they belong to the land, understanding and supporting wild nature's systems and appetites, heating a recipe that has worked for generations. Reciprocity, the way of any good gardener. Jaguars, goats, and acequias, cultivating the landscape of a wild earth. Free downloads of this program are available at the radio pages at Bioneers.org. Resources related to this show and the entire Bioneers radio series can also be found at Bioneers.org or by calling 877-246-6337. That's 1-877-BIONEER. Visit Bioneers.org to become a member, make a donation, learn about the annual Bioneers conference, or join our thriving online community. Choose from articles, blogs, event calendars, books, podcasts, CDs, and DVDs at Bioneers.org or by calling 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Osabel. Written by Neil Harvey and Laird Townsend. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Production assistants, Marita Prandoni. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Interview recording engineer, Jeff Westman. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Ryko disc label. Additional music was made available by Pygmy Twilight Records at www.donjulin.com. For more music information, visit Bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. 
I invite you to join the Bioneers in improving the environment by changing the world. This is program number 1008.